Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, 9, Luke chapter 9, I apologize, Um, Luke chapter 9, and this week we will be completing our study of what is commonly known of as the transfiguration of Jesus. Um, Last week we, we studied it, we saw that Jesus took the disciples up on a mountain, only three of them, Peter, James, and John, and It was eight days after both Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ and Jesus' revelation that he understood and was now for the first time in Luke teaching his disciples that the Christ, contrary to their expectations, would be a suffering, dying, sin-bearing Messiah. Oh, glory and a kingdom were coming, but first came the cross. And the disciples of Jesus and those who would follow him, that same pattern is followed, that first there is the suffering and then the cross before humility, I mean, before glory comes humility. And so last week we we saw this and and we looked primarily at the presence of Moses and Elijah and what that signified. I'd like to begin by reading Luke 9, 28 to 36 and focusing on the second half. This is a monumental passage in Luke It is paradigmatic. It really, the book changes from this point on and gains a focus that we will see. Um, This is is a crescendo in the story. So Luke chapter 9, 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. As the men were preparing, uh, as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Luke has been, up to this point, presenting Jesus to the reader. If you remember, Luke wrote this gospel so that Theophilus, who's already heard reports of these things, might grow in his confirmation. He might have certainty regarding them. And as Jesus is put forward again and again in Luke's gospel, new information, new themes are developed. And in this passage, with this testimony of the Father... The fullest yet identity and significance of who Jesus is, is made clear. Um, In this one instance, accompanied with Jesus' baptism, God the Father himself personally goes on record, audibly, in front of witnesses, to establish who is his son. The question was raised first by the disciples when Jesus calmed the storm, who is this? The question was echoed by Herod, 
Who is this? Asked by Jesus to the apostles, who do men say that I am? Ultimately answered by Peter, you are the Christ of God. And even that definition, as good as it was, was insufficient. And immediately after giving that confession in in Luke chapter 9, look look back in chapter 9 to verse 20. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Good. Yes, well done, Peter. There's a lot more we need to understand. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This was not what the apostles were expecting of their Messiah. Now, a kingdom and glory is coming, you keep reading, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So this suffering Messiah does not cancel out the Jewish expectation of a reigning glorious, kingly, ruling Messiah. But the suffering would come first. And likewise, for Jesus would be disciples, following him was not an entrance into royalty and pomp and wealth, contrary to what today's prosperity gospels would teach, but no disciple is greater than his master. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate us. Now glory comes, exaltation comes, That same pattern follows. And Jesus, studying his Bible, Jesus in communion with God through prayer, has already understood his mission, already understood his mission of suffering. And he takes three disciples with him. He handpicks them. I want you to think of the privilege just to be one of the 12. And of that 12, there's a subset of Peter, James, and John, and he handpicks them on a mission. And last week we saw the setting, the when, eight days after these sayings. Why was that significant? Because Jesus had promised that some who stood there would see the kingdom of God. And we saw last week that in part, this revelation of Jesus' glory was that sneak preview of the kingdom and of glory. And we knew where? Up on a mountain. And we considered last week the implications and the similarities of Moses going up on a mountain to meet with God and glory and faces shining. And we looked at who Peter, John, and James, both Peter and John later writing about this very event as it had impacted them. And he tells them why. Took them up on a mountain to pray. So get this, Jesus handpicks a subset of his handpicked 12 apostles. And he tells them, I want you to come with me. We're going up on a mountain. We're going to go pray. Imagine the privilege. Imagine the honor. Imagine their sleep. As Jesus prays, And they grow weary and fall asleep. And so I want to pick up from last week. We considered the significance of of Moses and Elijah appearing to Jesus, Jesus' glory, while the disciples were slumbering. We considered that Moses and Elijah confirmed Jesus' divine identity, that as Moses had cried out, show me your glory, and God said, you can't see my glory, when God finally on earth chose to reveal his glory through his son, Moses was there to witness it. And so Moses finally saw the face before he'd hidden from, as as Michael Card in music put the concept. 
we also saw that they appeared to confirm his prophetic unity, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Moses writing the Pentateuch, Elijah establishing and representing the rest of the prophets. There is no discontinuity. There's no disagreement between what Jesus brings and what Moses declared. We also saw that they appeared to confirm his apocalyptic destiny. The only passage in Scripture where Moses and Elijah show up together is at the end of Malachi, talking about the great and awesome day of the Lord. And these two men here anticipate that. And they spoke to him of his exodus in Jerusalem. Before moving on from that, I want to pick up one more point and reason why they showed up. Now, everything we looked at last week was what it showed to us what it revealed to us and to the witnesses of who Jesus is and what his mission was. But I want to stop just for a moment and think of the significance of these men showing up and speaking to him for Jesus. Again, we can be mistaken into thinking that Jesus is walking around like Superman with an endless source of power, and he may look like he's tired, but really, there's Jesus. And what we see instead is regularly a man committed to prayer, presumably because he needed the prayer. I've said this before, the the power and the pattern of Jesus' private prayer life and disciplines is, is what gave him the strength and the consistency in his public ministry. Jesus was a man of prayer because he needed to be a man of prayer. And so Jesus goes up on this mountain to pray with God, and Moses and Elijah appear to him, and what we see, and this is under the transfiguration point C, the father encourages or strengthens his beloved son. The father encourages his beloved son. Like any proud father, he knows from time to time his son needs encouragement, confirmation, strengthening. I just want to stop for a moment and and think of that. Last week we looked primarily at what we learn, what we get from this. Jesus, by studying the Scriptures, remember, we've seen Jesus learning. It's a mistake to think that Jesus comes into this world functionally omniscient, as if right out of the womb he's talking and speaking. No, the presentation of Jesus in Luke's Gospel is of a child growing in wisdom and stature, growing in knowledge, sitting at the feet of the scribes, sitting at the feet of the teachers in the temple in Jerusalem for three days and nights, asking questions, listening to their teaching. He's learning. He's studying. Now, he's learning perfectly. He doesn't believe anything that is false. And evidently and demonstrably, by the point he reaches his baptism, Jesus has mastered the Scripture. And so in chapter 9, Jesus evidences that from reading his Bible, he has learned, I fully believe this, learned the Messiah will first suffer, and he announces it. And he goes up on this mountain. That must have been a, a difficult and challenging conclusion to come to is Jesus is reading his Bible and he knows he's the son of God and he knows what the angels said about him at his birth and he's reading to understand what that means and I know this is a new thought for some but I think that's the way Luke presents it Jesus growing in wisdom and understanding and he and he, he accepts that he doesn't turn from that and he embraces that and his father encourages him in that encourages him. Two, two ways of encouragement. One, Jesus is able to experience the glory he had with the Father. Jesus is able to experience the glory he had with the Father. In John 17, Jesus prays to his Father this way, 17.5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus longed for 
hungered for, yearned for the glory that he had before the world began with the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us why did Jesus not turn away from the cross? Why did he endure its shame? For the joy set before him. And here the Father gives him a foretaste. Confirmation. Encouragement. Strengthening. For Jesus. Remember, this is all taking place while the disciples are asleep. This ministry is happening to Jesus. We just have the barest terms of what they're talking about. His exodus in Jerusalem. And secondly, Moses and Elijah are sent to confirm him in his mission. To confirm him in his mission. That's probably the most striking thing of this event. And the way the tone of the book of Luke changes as Jesus comes down from the mountain. Jesus has by this point pieced it together, studied his Bible. He knows the mission of the Messiah is first to die. He declares it to his disciples. He has embraced it. And then Moses and Elijah speak to him of these things and what encouragement that must have given him. And we see the evidence because as he comes down from the mountain, look at verse 51, and this is where the book changes. This is when we enter the second and final section of the book. 951, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And for the rest of the book, is now a journey to Jerusalem. It is under the shadow of the cross. The rest of the Luke's gospel has that in view. Look, look at 10.1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. Where to? Jerusalem. Look at 10.38. Now as he went on their way, Jesus entered a village. On their way where? Jerusalem. Turn to chapter 13, verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Fourteen twenty-five. Now great crowds accompanied him. Where? To Jerusalem. Seventeen eleven. On the way to Jerusalem. He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. 19.1, he entered Jericho and was passing through. Where? On his way to Jerusalem. 19.11, as he heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And then finally, just before the triumphal entry in 19.28, as he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. You see that? From this point on, everything is on the way to Jerusalem. Everything is headed there. The 951 becomes the paradigm. Jesus firmly sets his face. He will not be deterred. He will not shrink back. He will not flinch. He's going to Jerusalem, and he's going to Jerusalem in his own words that he must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, and killed, and on the third day raised. He's going to Jerusalem to die. And that determination and that focus comes as a result of his encounter on the mountain. And so I have to conclude that Moses and Elijah's encouragement strengthen him, confirm him, add to his determination. And so the father has encouraged his son. The father has strengthened and confirmed his son. And Jesus comes down established, focused, resolute to confirm his mission. Well, now let's take a look at the disciples' response. The disciples' response. This is amazing contrast, isn't it? They're handpicked. 
and of the hand-picked of the hand-picked. Jesus picked 12 disciples, and then he, of the 12 disciples, he picked three, and he, and he invites them to come with him up on a mountain for a prayer retreat. Imagine their sense of privilege, sense of honor. And these men with the Lord, while he's praying, and while all these amazing things are taking place, are oblivious because they fall asleep. Luke gives no reason why they should be tired, and I think the point is to show us that they were, and here are your blanks, undisciplined and unaware. Undisciplined and unaware. Undisciplined, they simply can't stay awake. Unaware, they do not realize the events that are taking place around them. This is not the only time such things happen. In Luke 22, Jesus invited them in to pray again. He came to the place and said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And he withdrew from them a stone's throw and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And again, heaven responds and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This angels are appearing, ministering to Jesus. He's sweating like drops of blood. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. These guys are dullards spiritually. Epic, epochal events are taking place around them and they're snoring. But eventually they wake up right at the end. Peter and those who were with him, verse 32, were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him as the men were parting from him. So Peter wakes up and he sees he's just about missed it all. Somehow he knows it's Moses. Somehow he knows it's Elijah. He sees the glory. But he also sees, oh no, they're getting ready to leave. And I think that explains in part what he says. And there's some confusion over, over this. I got one whole commentary that wants to make Peter's statement about building these tents, like the interpretive key of the passage. Um, I, I don't think that's what's going on. I think Luke gives us um, at least three indicators that Peter is off base here. One, his spiritual and his, his, his physical undisciplinedness. This is not a man on his game. This is a, a groggy, waking up, undisciplined, unaware person. Secondly, Luke tells us he didn't know what he said. Sometimes people just speak, right? Sometimes people just speak foolishly. Proverbs 10.8 says this, The wise at heart will receive commands, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs 18.2, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. So Peter and the disciples wake up. They see this amazing scene, but they see it's coming to an end perhaps feeling a little ashamed, perhaps feeling a little foolish, not wanting to miss this. Peter just does what he does, and he puts his foot in his mouth, and he speaks, and he says a declaration, and he makes a proposal. Declaration, Master, it's good that we are here, which I take to mean, I'm awake. <laughs> I mean, just imagine this. Jesus invites them with him. Come pray with me. Come pray. And he gets down, and he prays, and as he's praying, Moses and Elijah show up, and glory is revealed, and he looks over, and there are his disciples. <laughs> And just as it's ending, and they're talking to him, you know, Peter wipes his eyes. Whoa. Jesus, it's really good that we're here. Which is to say, I, I, we're here. Thank you. Um, I, I don't think it means a whole lot more than that. I didn't miss the whole thing, Lord. Thank you. 
It's kind of like if you invited someone to go see a movie with you. I've done this before, and they sort of fall asleep next to you, and then they wake up at the last 10 minutes. That was a great movie. Thanks for taking me. I really appreciated that. That was good. Those credits were amazing. Um, that's what I think is going on, something like that. And then the proposal. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Maybe Peter thought they were leaving because the heat of the day was coming out. Maybe he thought if he made a place for them to rest, that they would stay longer. What's evident, Peter doesn't want them to leave. Peter wants this to be prolonged. He, he feels foolish for having missed as much as he did, and he wants more of it. So that's his proposal. Now, everything that happens in response happens in response to that proposal. Because now, in response to this, the father goes on the record. The father gives direct, verbal testimony in front of witnesses to the identity of his son. Peter has put his foot in his mouth. He means well, but he didn't know what he said. He just spoke the first thing that came into his mind. And so we read in verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now, three times Luke mentions the cloud. There's a reason for that. This cloud um, is, is, is symbolic. or it, It's the same thing that happened when Moses went up on the mountain and met with God. It, it, it's, it's a sign, a visual representation that God the Father himself is showing up. Listen, we looked at this last week, Exodus 24, 15 to 18. But when Moses goes up on the mountain, he goes only so far with the elders. And then God calls him up alone. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud, now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the cloud in this similar example that we looked at last week of Moses going up and meeting with God, Moses' face shining, the cloud and Moses entering the cloud is Moses entering God's presence. So this cloud comes and interrupts Peter. That's the first point. The father interrupts Peter with the cloud. This is the third sign that we aren't really to take Peter as what he says is too insightful because God interrupts him. While he's speaking, the text says, look at that, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid. I almost picture Peter winding down as he's saying it. Lord, it's good that we're here. Let us make a, a, a tent for one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was saying these things, the cloud came and he became afraid. The father interrupts him and then corrects him. Point B, the father corrects Peter about Jesus' identity. See, Peter makes two mistakes. The first is the title he addresses him as master. It's insufficient given this context, demonstratedly insufficient by the way he wants to treat Jesus as an equal with Moses and Elijah. He's going to make three booths, all the same. Everyone gets their own booth, everyone gets their own tent, but three of them. I mean, after all, this is Moses. This is Elijah. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but clearly Peter's viewing them as in roughly the same category of eminence and preeminence with one another. So master, we're going to make three booths, one for each of you, these great Old Testament leaders and prophets and for the Lord's Messiah. 
Notice how when the Father speaks, He doesn't speak a word about Moses or Elijah. No, no, Peter. No, Peter. You need to understand who this one is. And when the Father's done speaking and the cloud is gone, Jesus stands alone. The Father is making the point emphatically. Peter has an insufficient understanding of who Jesus is. And the Father will speak three titles um, or, or allude to three titles of Jesus' identity. And we would do well to focus on these as the Father gives testimony about his son. The Father corrects Peter about Jesus' identity. That's, that's the big difference, by the way, between this time the Father speaking and the earlier time in Luke's Gospel where the Father spoke. If you remember back in Luke chapter 3 when Jesus was baptized, once again a voice came down from heaven saying something very similar. But I want you to notice the difference. In Luke 3.22, the voice said, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Here, the voice said, This is my Son. What's the difference? In the first instance, the Father is talking to Jesus. Luke 3, the voice comes to Jesus and for Jesus. Here, the Father is speaking of Jesus. Third person, This is my Son. He's, he's correcting Peter. He interrupts Peter. You don't know what you're talking about, Peter. Luke says as much. He didn't know what he was saying. Peter, you don't understand who this one is. This is my beloved son. This is my chosen one. This is the one that you're to listen to. So let's take a look at these three references. We looked at one of them last week, but we've got all three of these here. First, this is my son. This is my son. Now, this is rich Old Testament language. Please turn, keep your finger here, and turn back to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, where we find what is commonly referred to as the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant with David. The context is that David is blessed and secure, and he wants to do something for God, and so he calls um, Nathan to him, and he, he says, look, I want to build a house for God. I dwell in this castle. The Lord's ark is in a tent. It's in a tabernacle. And Nathan does not inquire of the Lord, and the Lord is simultaneously corrects David, but encouraged. He, he's pleased that it was on David's heart, yet he makes it clear, you don't do great things for me. I do great things for you. And the covenant part of this comes in. We'll pick it up in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. By the way, that same play on words of house meaning a physical building and house meaning a dynasty, the house of David, the house of Saul, works both in English and in Hebrew. That same play on words. David wants to build a house, a physical house for God. David says, no. And God says, David, no, I'm building you a house. I'm building you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 
So in the first instance, God the Father is speaking of Solomon. How do we know that? Well, because David's descendant coming from his body is going to sin and get disciplined. So even though this ultimately will speak to the Messiah in the first instance, it's Solomon who does in fact build the temple. Solomon who does in fact get corrected by the Lord. And you can read about his his correction and what he learned from it in the book of Ecclesiastes. But ultimately, now turn to Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm. Ultimately, this Davidic covenant gets picked up by David in Psalm 2. And it becomes clear that whereas in the first instance, that covenant promise was made regarding David's ascending to Solomon, as God makes it clear this, this kingdom will be eternal, unending, well, there's only two ways that can play out. Either David has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, world without end, amen. Or eventually, along will come a Davidic son who's unique, a little different, whose rule lasts. By the time you get to Psalm 2, that's the thought here. And Psalm 2 is a massive messianic psalm. It brings together threads and themes we're going to read the entire psalm. It's 12 verses. And I want you to notice that in each three-verse strophe, the Lord appears and another person appears. So in the first strophe, verses 1 to 3, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. If you remember, anointed is simply the English for the Hebrew word messiah or messiah which is translated into Greek as Christos or Christ. Christ, Messiah, and anointed are Greek, Hebrew, and English for the exact same thing. Against the Lord and against his Messiah, his anointed, his Christ. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So the first strophe, it's the Lord and the Messiah. Now it's the Lord and the King. And then in the third strophe, speaking from the perspective of the King, I will tell of the decree of the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. <coughs> you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now there is the quotation of the Davidic covenant where God says, what's, what's the special relationship between him and this Davidic son? I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. Today the Lord said, you are my son. And that language of asking for the nations is picked up three times in the book of Revelation where Jesus, upon his return, will rule the world with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 makes it clear that, yes, Solomon builds God's house, but as for David's unending kingdom, eventually will come along a very special Davidite, David's greater son, and he will have a rule that is unprecedented and eternal. He'll be the great king. And all of this is tied up in the father saying, this is my beloved son. All of that is caught up in that. The blank here, Jesus is the messianic king. Jesus is the messianic king. You don't build a booth for him and for Moses and for Elijah. He's the king. And you would do well to read the last strophe. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, 
lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So in that first title, God the Father makes it clear, (laughs) this is not a peer of Moses and Elijah. This is my son. This is the Davidic king. This is Psalm 2. Okay? The second, a little more obscure, this is my chosen one. And turn, please, to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. There's a subsection of the book of Isaiah of four servant songs. Four passages in Isaiah, starting in Isaiah 42, that speak of a special servant of the Lord. And the very first one in Isaiah 42 is what the Lord God is linking in with here. And he's identifying Jesus, your blank, as the suffering servant. He identifies Jesus as the suffering servant. Look, Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen. There's the link. Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. So he has established justice on the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. And we're not going to look at all four of the servant songs, but it occurs again in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50. I want to look at the fourth one in Isaiah 52. Who is the Father saying Jesus is? Isaiah 52, the last of the servant songs. By calling him my chosen, he's identifying him as Isaiah 41, 42.1. And if he's 42.1, then he is the Lord's servant, which means he is all of the servant songs. Isaiah 52.13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, and that he is still the servant, the suffering servant, that he is the one the Father has identified as his chosen, Jesus Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And you can keep reading. God the Father has just identified his son as also the suffering servant of Isaiah, which is the one who will bear the sins of the people the one who is crushed in our behalf, the one who will 
be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. All of that in my chosen. And then the last title that the Father speaks, listen to him, we looked at last week, some fulfillment that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses. And we looked at Deuteronomy 18, where the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And so in those three titles, this is the great Davidic king. This is the suffering servant. This is the great prophet like but greater than Moses. You don't build a tent for each of those three people. You honor him. Now, I want to skip over those three points and come back to them at the end. And I want to jump down to point number five, the disciples' silence. So that's what the Father says. Let's see if the disciples get it. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You know, there's a certain wisdom that just comes from keeping your mouth shut. Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Better let men think you're a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt, is the way I've heard it sometimes. And they got nothing to say. They, 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 they are in shock. No more smart things for Peter to say. He, you just heard the voice of God. Now, it's evident from Luke's gospel that they still don't get it. They still don't get it. They're going to fall asleep when Jesus is praying in the garden. And if you just look a little later in chapter 9, this, this identification that this one whom they follow will suffer and die. He's not immediately headed for glory. He's immediately headed for shame. And yet, what are they arguing about a few verses later in Luke 9, 46? An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. Did they get it? No. Right over their head. They were afraid and remained silent. I, I think this is probably similar to what Luke says earlier in, in his gospel when Mary pondered these things in her heart. Now, what's clear is eventually they figure it out. Eventually, after meditating on this, after receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, they, they figure this out. But right now, they, they don't know what to make of this. <laughs> They're smart enough to keep their mouths shut. They don't understand. And they, point B, they did not understand his mission. They're, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. He's just told them, I'm headed for death. And those who would follow me, they're going to pick up their crosses and come after me. And they want to know, who's the greatest? They don't get it at all. But, but I want to now go back to those three points for application. And, and I want to go to Acts chapter 3. I want to look at the apostolic preaching of the cross in the book of Acts. Because they do get it they do eventually put this together. I want you to see that they put this together. What to make of this. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, when they're empowered by God to preach his word, they put together these things that we've just put together. And there are three points of application. If Jesus is who the Father says he is, if he is the Messianic King, if he is the suffering servant, if he is the prophet greater than Moses, then three things follow upon us. And we can see Peter himself put these things together in Acts chapter 3 and 4. Which, of course, Luke wrote. The sequel to Luke. They don't get it now, but they will get it. I thought it would be better to end on this positive call to response than the disciples' failure. First, if Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses, 
And this is kind of obvious. Listen to him for God's word. That's the point of raising up a prophet like Moses. The, the people were given a prophet who spoke to them for God, and Moses would go up on the mountain, he would speak to God, and he would come down, and he would give the people the word of the Lord, and the people would say, all that the Lord commands, we will do, and they were good. God has now raised up another prophet like Moses, greater than Moses, and he is the one who brings us the word of God. He is the one who is the word of God, and there is no other place for us to look. You want to know who God is? You want to know how to be at peace with God? Listen to him. Don't, don't look anywhere else. There is no place else to look. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter says this, starting in verse 17. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as you did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring of all things about which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And then Peter has now figured it out. Verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You must listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. If, if, if the Father's gone on record, if the Father's testimony is true, then this record holds true as well. You have a choice. You can listen to Jesus, and by listen, obey, heed, or you will be destroyed. Every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are sons of the prophets and that the covenants that God made with your father saying to Abraham and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant. See how Peter's put these things together? He's preaching Christ and he's preaching that Christ is the greater Moses. He's preaching Christ and he's preaching that Christ is the Isaiahic servant sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So, so what if this is true? The so what? We need, we need to listen to Jesus. We need to listen to Jesus and his word. We need to depend on it. We need to come to him. We need to hear it. We need to saturate our minds with it. This is the one whom God has raised, and there is no other. Do not lean on your own understanding. Listen to him. Second, if Jesus is indeed the suffering servant, trust in Jesus for deliverance from sin. Trust in Jesus for deliverance from sin. He's going to accomplish an exodus in Jerusalem. That's what Moses and Elijah are talking to him about. And just as Moses led a redemption where the people were freed from their bondage to Pharaoh, their slavery, and it was done through the death of a firstborn, and it was done through the Passover lamb, the blood of the lamb that protected them as they left and miraculously were delivered, and they entered into a covenant with God, and they entered into sonship with God. So Jesus, the firstborn, the lamb, through his death will provide a way of escape. And these people, you and I, we become sons and daughters with God as we enter into a covenant of salvation with him. If you're here today and you need your sins forgiven, if you recognize that feeling of guilt and unworthiness, there is one who has bore your transgressions and sins, who is stricken and smitten on your behalf. 
And Peter in Acts chapter 4 has this to say. Verse 11 and 12. This Jesus is the cornerstone rejected by you, the builder rejected by you, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus is the one who gives the word of God. Jesus is the one. You want to know who God is? You know what God wants from you? You want to know how to be at right and at peace with God? You, You need to listen to Jesus. You need to heed what he says or you will be destroyed. But he's, he's not just that great prophet. He's also the suffering servant. If you need cleansing, you need your sins forgiven, you need a scapegoat, you need redemption, you need to be delivered from your slavery to sin, oh yes, Jesus accomplishes that as well. Trust in Jesus to, for deliverance from your sins. He, he lives and died and lives again He might save us and deliver us from the power of our sin. And finally, if Jesus is the great Davidic king, then you and I must submit to Jesus as Lord and king. Look a little later in chapter 4. Peter and the apostles are released. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then what do they do? They quote Psalm 2. Because they've put it together. Peter has referenced Deuteronomy 18. He's the prophet. Peter has called him the servant. And here, the, the, the early church quotes Psalm 2, recognizing that in Jesus, that prophecy as well is fulfilled. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against you, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name of your holy servant Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. That's God saying amen. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, the early church, by Acts 3, they put together these titles. Peter and the church have understood now what they didn't get then. This is the prophet like Moses. This is the suffering servant. This is the great Davidic king. And so Luke has presented this to us and for us. That same challenge that comes to us, will we listen to him? Will we trust in him? Will we submit to him and his rule and his lordship? That is the challenge for us. In in Luke's gospel, the, the case has been made. And starting as Jesus comes down the mountain, we are no longer going to study fundamentally Luke putting Jesus on display to confirm who he is. Rather, we're going to see what he does as he goes to the cross. So so Luke has now given the final testimony to who Jesus is. We've heard it from his own mouth. We've heard it from the mouths of the apostles. We've heard it from the mouth of demons. We've heard it from the mouth of angels. We've heard it from the mouth of prophets like Anna and Simeon. We've heard it from the very mouth of God. 
So we need every one of us to, to be secure. Are we confident in these things? Will we live like we are confident in these things or are we still undecided? Listen to him. Look to him. Trust in him. Submit to him. This is the Lord's son. This is the Lord's chosen. This is the prophet like Moses to whom we must listen. Let's pray. Lord God. Your word is so rich. You have kept your word. And all of these strands from the Old Testament of of a coming deliverer, of a covering servant, of a coming king, coming prophet, are fulfilled in your son. Lord, the disciples were confused, bewildered, and yet later they understood. By your spirit, they boldly proclaimed these things. And Lord, we too have your spirit And we too have the advantage of seeing the bigger picture, the whole story of what Jesus did and what he accomplished. Lord, give us that clarity and that boldness that we might live lives that proclaim he is king, that proclaim that he is the servant, proclaim he is the prophet. Let us listen to him. Let us trust in him. Let us submit to him. Oh, Lord God, let there be no doubts remaining in the hearts of anyone in this room. What greater testimony could we ask for? What greater witness could we look for than God the Father speaking from the cloud? Oh, Lord God, remove our doubts. Grant us a confidence that acts, that takes hold, that believes. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.